May the peace of Christ be with you. This is Molly Vetter, Senior Pastor of the Westwood United Methodist Church in Los Angeles. Welcome to our Sanctuary Gathering podcast. Here we share the sermon preached on Sunday as a part of our Sanctuary Gathering. We hope that in these words you will be drawn closer to God and made more ready to love your neighbor. As a congregation, we embrace the words of the Hebrew prophet that are etched into the stairs that lead to our building, the calling to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. We also believe that we're a richer congregation for the diversity of people who participate in our community, and we celebrate the diversity of age, race, gender identity, and sexual orientation that participate in our church. You are welcome in this place, and we hope you will participate. We invite you to do your own theology, to wrestle with questions of faith as we seek out what it means to be faithful Christians today. You're welcome to join us not only by listening in to this podcast, but we also invite you to join in our congregational life. Every Sunday, you're welcome to join us for worship at 9.30 a.m. You can join us in our beautiful sanctuary in Los Angeles at the corner of Warner and Wilshire or online via our church Facebook page. All are welcome in our midst, and we thank you for being a part of our church. May these moments be a blessing to you today. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who have pleasure in them. Full of honor and majesty are the works of the Lord whose righteousness endures forever who has caused his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. The Lord provides for the faithful and is ever mindful of his covenant. The Lord has shown his people the power of his works by giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of the Lord's hands are faithful and just. The precepts of the Lord are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. The Lord sent redemption to his people and has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and wondrous is God's name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. The praise of the Lord endures forever. This is the word of God for the people. Of God. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading today uh, comes from Mark's gospel in the first chapter. It's a story of Jesus casting an unclean spirit out of a man there in the synagogue. And as I read it, I want to acknowledge the distance in understanding about evil spirits and their possession of people. It's not something we tend to talk about today, and yet at the same time, I think we all have experienced the evil power of fear to overtake an assembly, a gathered people, our own minds, the powers of addiction to separate us from our true selves and prevent us from acting rightly. So I invite you to hear this passage acknowledging the two millennia of distance in culture and time from here to there 
and listen still for a word that it speaks to us today. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath was over, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once, his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Before I begin, I want to offer a word of welcome and acknowledgement. Our Bishop Dottie Escobedo Frank and her spouse Jim are here with us in worship this morning. Welcome, Bishop Dottie. And Jim, we're so glad to have you in our community and in our community in the church. I hope you feel at home here in our midst. Um, will you pray with me? Holy God, I pray that your grace would be present to us this morning that my words and our thoughts and our actions would reflect the fullness of your grace. We pray in your holy name. Amen. It's always the Sunday the bishop shows up in your church that you decide to go in hard on Taylor Swift. (laughs) Only the Swifties, I know, recognized in the graphic image that came out in the E! News this week, a tip of the hat to Taylor's Reputation album. I tried to make it a little graphically similar, but not too on the nose. I know the true fans of Taylor Swift are eagerly awaiting the moment that she'll announce which album she's going to next re-release, and folk want reputation. I picked this word, this song, this reference to our dear Taylor Swift because I was inspired by the final words of this gospel lesson that I read just now from the first chapter of Mark. It describes how Jesus appears in this synagogue teaching as one with some different, powerful, real kind of authority that's different from the way his religious community usually taught. And then how he came into face-to-face confrontation with an evil spirit how he spoke words and the evil spirit fled away. And then it says his fame began to spread. But the Greek word used here for fame is a little more like infamy, right? Like it's, it's his, if you'll go with me, reputation. And it's a reputation that comes charged with expectation with an understanding of some kind of confrontation, with an awareness of tension between this thing that Jesus is embodying and the religious community he's speaking into. Now, this particular passage from Mark's gospel is one that every time I read it, I have to make that kind of acknowledgement of the cultural differences that span these 2,000 years since it's first happened. 
And I have to acknowledge the difference in how we understand behaviors that we would now explain with uh, mental illness and the being affected by alcohol or drugs or other substances, this confrontation in the temple between someone who was described as having an evil spirit. This is a now dangerous and old-fashioned way of describing very real challenges that we face. And too often in our religious community has been a way that we dismiss and heap judgment on people who struggle with mental illness in particular. So acknowledging that, if it's possible, I want to dive into the power of what's happening nonetheless. I was thinking of the power that I have experienced fear to have over my own life and even over our religious communities and how fear paralyzes us from doing the right thing. It asks the same kinds of questions that this man described as living with an evil spirit had. And in this moment, here at the beginning of our gospel, Jesus speaks a word and that fear, that evil, that grip held on a human in the midst of that religious community simply flees away. I long for that kind of power to speak into my life. When I feel myself sometimes in sharp moments, but more frequently in a slow, gradual build held captive by my own fears and anxieties, Jesus speaks in that synagogue face to face with the full embodiment of that evil and sends it flying. And then he starts to get a reputation. A reputation that's some esteem for his power to liberate people from evil spirits that have held them captive. His power to teach with a different kind of authority, something embodied with his very existence that doesn't have to reference other things in order to have truth, but simply embodies it as he is. His fame, his reputation begins to spread. And I suspect it's one that people held with uh, in, in very different opinions. Maybe a little like Taylor Swift. Some love and some despise her prominence and power. If she can incite that kind of media attention for us, I have to believe that Jesus was next level. In this moment, as his fame begins to spread, as his reputation is carried through communities, as people tell one another about this power that he holds, I wonder what it speaks into our own lives and world. I found it hard to access stories that seem to be about healing people by casting out evil because too often we continue to shame people who live with physical illness or mental illness, holding on to these outdated and harmful assumptions that our health and well-being is somehow tied to our morality, our righteousness, and our belovedness. So I read these stories and a part of me cringes. But also, at the same time, I have known and felt the power of 
what I can only describe as an evil spirit to hold us captive. I suppose I'm grateful for having watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer in formative years because it gave me a whole different vocabulary for discussing the demons in our midst, separated from the heightened anxiety of Christian communities that talk about evil spirits with a sense of doom and judgmentalism in an effort to leverage our fear and complicity in a project that's about something that feels out of sync with love. But Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and I think this gospel passage, give us some words to use as handles to describe what is true, that there are powers of evil that are beyond us as individuals and our individual choices. You have seen and known the power that an addiction can have on someone you love or even maybe your own self to separate you from your true self. It has a power over you that can only be overcome when you acknowledge that it exists and begin to notice the power that it has held. And you've seen the consequences of evil that's shared in communities that harbor harmful ideas about the righteousness of some over and against the unrighteousness of others. The power that even religious communities, maybe especially religious communities, have to communicate a twisted message of good news that elevates some against others, that has, in the story of our nation, fueled white supremacy and supported the patriarchy, continued to devalue the blessedness, the beauty, the belovedness of us and our neighbors and friends. That is a kind of evil that's greater than any one singular choice. And even when we begin to try to be anti-racist siblings in this world, for example, we discover that the racisms that are taught into the fabric of our lives and our culture and our communities, they persist. And even though we mean to do well, we're caught in something bigger than ourselves, a system that has to be actively dismantled and pushed back against. So when Jesus calls out to this evil spirit, I'm grateful that we have a savior who speaks to powers in the world that are greater than our individual choices, that are somehow giving us a way to understand this challenge of this moment that we belong in, where there are forces of evil that are bigger than we can control ourselves, which is a hard lesson. I like to think that I can handle things control things, make the good choices, get us over this place where we are. But there are challenges we face that are bigger than any one of us, bigger than our congregation can handle alone, bigger than the United Methodist Church can handle alone, bigger than U.S. America can handle alone. There are challenges we face in this world that need a clear voice calling out to be silenced, for evil to be silenced and kept at bay. Uh, We have that beautiful psalm text that Shirley read for us today, proclaiming the blessedness of God. I don't know if you felt a sort of disjuncture between the song we were singing around the scripture and the confidence of that psalm, but I was definitely in that place. Psalm 111 is one of those psalms that works well on the homepage, that 
sings well in the assembly, that declares the goodness of God. It's different from some of the other psalms, the ones that call out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or how long, O Lord? Here the psalmist is in a good place. But we could, of course, take it out of context, right? We assume that it's proclaimed beautifully from a lectern, but what if it's the psalm that we utter to ourselves when we feel it all unraveling, when we remind ourselves how gracious and merciful God is, we're trying to believe ourselves that that is true. What if we took these proclamations and put them into the troubled places of the world to dare to believe that God is with us still, that even though circumstances seem to prove otherwise, there is hope yet to be claimed and embodied and held. The psalm for me today is a reminder of that big picture. And maybe even it will give those of us alive here today the courage to be people who speak out even though we don't move with the same power that Jesus moved with when he entered that synagogue, when he called out to silence the evil spirits, even though it's not quite so sudden, complete, and perfect, maybe the rest of us need to hold on to these reminders, have them tucked in our pocket or hidden in the back of our mind as we try the work of confronting evil spirits in this world, of speaking out when we've become held captive by fear, twisted and prevented from being true to ourselves and to the love of God. I think of the challenges that we face as a Christian church in U.S. America in 2024, is that where we are? In 2024, 16 years ago, a book came out uh, by the Barna Research Group called Unchristian, and it was a study of people inside and outside the church and their perceptions of both the church and of Jesus. This research project looked at different generations as well, but they found that across the generations, people outside the church tended to think of the church with descriptions that were out of sync with how they think about Jesus. When people were asked what they think about the church, the words and phrases people came up with were things like judgmental and hypocritical and anti-gay. When people were asked what they think about Jesus, they came up with words like loving and welcoming and consistent. We live in this reality. These 16 years later, that situation has not significantly changed. At about the same time that Unchristian came out, I discovered a book by Sarah Miles called Eat This Bread. It came out about the same time, at least in the same year. Sarah Miles was an atheist and a progressive and a journalist, active and engaged in the San Francisco area. She walked into an Episcopal church one Sunday morning, sort of for no apparent to her reason, and took communion, and in doing so, experienced a dramatic conversion. 
that made her want to participate in this life, which is life in the body of Christ. And she became active in her community, opening a food bank that used the communion table in the center of their beautiful worship space as the table on which to put groceries so that people could come during the week and literally be fed. Her story is powerful and compelling. I heard a radio interview where she was on the show hosted by a conservative Christian broadcaster who was drawn in by the persuasive and powerful authority she speaks with as she described what it meant to be converted into this faith and belonging. And this conservative radio host at some point in the interview acknowledges their political differences and says to her, you have to stop saying these things because if you keep talking this way, people are going to start to believe that it's true. And I can't ignore you because, this is the part I loved, he said, what you're doing just smells like Jesus. Just smells like Jesus. Which I think was his saying that she spoke with an authority. Maybe that was obvious because of the authenticity and the embodied way that her belonging in the body of Christ made a difference for how she lived her life and how she spent her days and how she treated her neighbors. Which I think is, after all, the antidote to the evil spirits of fear that take grip of us and prevent us from seeing how to be faithful. Evil spirits of fear, even fear of our own institutional decline and death, fear of a changing world that we no longer understand, that we worry that we won't fit into, fear of our loss of power or certainty. All of these fears try to reach their tentacles into us, and we hear again this morning Jesus' clear voice saying, silence. And I imagine those tentacles slithering back, loosening their grip on our hearts and our life. We are in every moment given opportunities to choose who we're going to be and how we're going to be. And we have a God who keeps showing up, providing for us and offering hope, who has been active from the beginning, whose legacy of care for us in this world can be traced back through our Hebrew scriptures, through the gospel, through the story of the Christian church, all the way to today. We know that God is good, and we trust that God loves us. And we then have the power to say in small and grand ways, silence, be still. So the evil tentacles of fear slither back into their... I don't really hate snakes, and I don't mean to... But those tentacles of fear slither back into their corners and loosen their grip on the center of our being. Which brings me back, of course, to Taylor Swift, whose reputation album was written in a season where her reputation was much discussed. Right? She'd had a crossover pop album that gained a lot of fame, a feud with other artists, lots of 
takes on who she was and what kind of person she was, descriptions of her love life that characterized her in a wild variety of ways. She released the, this particular album in, in um, sort of PR silence. She deleted everything from her social media. She did no press tour. She just put out the music. as a kind of a let my work stand for itself. And again, I'm not saying Taylor is Jesus. <laughs> but maybe there's something to learn. The album begins as a bold pushback against the haters. But as the songs go on and you get to the second half, it becomes a tender description of a longing. You came here for an analysis of Taylor's album today, I know. As you get later in the album, it becomes more tender. And there's a song on the... Know, is the second side still a thing? If you listen to the vinyl, um, called Delicate. It opens like this. This ain't for the best. My reputation's never been worse, so you must like me for me. We can't make any promises now, can we, babe? But you can make me a drink. And if you go with me, I promise every sermon won't be a Taylor Swift sermon. I appreciate the way she's named this moment. My reputation's never been worse, so you must like me for me. Imagining beginning a human relationship at a time when everyone's talking about you, saying all kinds of things. You're not with me for my reputation. I can't make any promises, but you can make me a drink. And I hear echoes. Again, you're going to tell me to get off Taylor. I hear echoes of Jesus who told us that if we gave even a cold drink of water to one of the little ones, we were giving it to him. Describing that it's this life, it's our actions in this world, it's our tending to one another, our tending to community, our looking after and nourishing one another, that's the heart of the work. It's not a theoretical apocalyptic battle between good and evil. It's a silencing of fear and an invitation to be people who offer one another the gift of life something to drink, freedom and liberation from the spirits that held us captive. This concern for the well-being of our neighbor is knit throughout our scripture. And although Christians have a reputation for not living with compassion, a reputation for hypocrisy and judgmentalism, we get to participate in pushing back by simply tending to one another's needs, offering grace and hospitality and compassion and care, letting our lives embody with authority a different kind of gospel. I was moved by the writing and scholarship of Aubrey Hendricks, whose book, Christians Against Christianity, unravels the participation of right-wing evangelicalism and a message that's contrary to social justice. In it, he traces instances of how this false argument has been built, how religion has been used as a weapon to say we shouldn't care about our neighbors, and pushes back with scripture and tradition that tell a fundamentally different 
story. That care for social justice is not against the gospel, but it's woven throughout our story. It's an embodied hope that tends the well-being of every child of God, which is us and our neighbor and our strangers and even enemies. And when we do that, who knows what reputation we'll get, but we'll know that we live with authority, an authority grounded in love that never dies, in hope that comes out of even death, and in grace that makes everything possible. May it be so. Amen.